Good morning and welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of St. Albans, West Virginia on the Sunday, January 24th, the third Sunday after Epiphany. We are hoping you are joining us uh, live on YouTube or Facebook, either now or sometime later. So thank you for tuning in. Some announcements before we begin. Um, next, oh, back up. In the DHHR's COVID-19 map is today, the Canal County is gold. So in accordance with the session's policy, we will have in-person worship service next Sunday at the church. Next Sunday, there is also a congregational meeting. At the request of the session of the church, the annual meeting of the congregation has been set for 11.15, immediately following worship, next Sunday, January 31st. Uh, because we will be having in-person service during, due to the change in the COVID map, anybody who's here can participate in that meeting that way, but it will also be held via Zoom. Logging details for the meeting will be, be provided uh, closer to the date, so look for that this week. A reminder to our elders to please complete your 2020 annual committee reports and have them to the church office by January 28th. They will be presented at next Sunday's meeting. That's all we've got this morning, so let us worship God. Thank you. 
time for a little bit of time for our children's sermon, a time for young disciples. I invite all the kids to pay close attention to this. This is a uh, special thing that I brought with, uh, with me today at the church. Try to hold it up so everybody can see it. This, uh, I don't know if you can see it or not. Can you see pretty well? Yeah, the other shot. Yes, yes. Okay, great. All right, paying attention. All right, good. So this is my daughter Milo's fishing rod, and I don't know if you can tell or not, but it is um, kind of a mauvey pink. Uh, it's it's a very feminine uh, fishing rod for her. She she loves it thoroughly. Not that boys can't use pink fishing rods. I haven't used it myself, but she loves this one in particular. It's a gift from one of our friends. Name is Parker, and we all like to go fishing uh, at the Barnesville Community Park together. And so, uh, I don't know exactly how many fish this rod has has caught so far, but it's done okay. And, and we're going to use it quite a bit in the future. This is something that we enjoy, we enjoy doing together, my daughter and I. In fact, all of my kids, except for one, and one that doesn't particularly love it, but uh, all four of my kids have from time to time fished with me. We, we spend a lot of time together. We're going to read a story in just a second from the Bible about Jesus coming up to a, a lake um, or a sea and, and saying to some people that were fishing, hey, drop your stuff and, and come follow me and I'll teach you how to catch people. It's kind of a weird story because we don't think of people that catch other people as being necessarily good people, but maybe some people don't think the people that catch fish are good people. I don't know. Uh, but one of the things that always struck me about this is that two of the brothers that, that Jesus talks to specifically, James and John, were also fishing with their dad. Uh, they were known as the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And so even though um, two of the other people that were called by Jesus, that they were also brothers, I always thought it was neat that two brothers were fishing with their dad. And maybe that's something that you get to go do, fishing with somebody that you love, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, but there's something about fishing, at least for me, and hopefully maybe for you, that allows us to have close time together with somebody that we love. And when Jesus called these men away from fishing, from their profession, um, then he said, come, I'll teach you how to do something new. And it was almost like he was teaching them how to be a brand new person. And I, and I want us to know today that that's what Jesus is asking all of us to do. We don't get to fish with Jesus but if we follow Jesus, if we look at the Bible and we listen to what the stories tell us, we too become brand new people. And so while we love maybe doing something like this and love being with our family, sometimes what we have to do is, is change who we are, change inside, make a change and say, we will do whatever it is that you want us to do, Jesus. And sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's just as easy as not hitting our brother or sister in the head with a toy. That's the way we change. Other times it may be more difficult because other times I might have to say something like, well, I can't, I can't uh, be your friend anymore because I love Jesus and uh, you, you know, you love to worship the dirt. I don't know what it will be because we should be friends with everyone. But anyway, the analogy always breaks down. What I want us to know is Jesus is calling us to always be people of change and looking to the future and seeing how we can follow Jesus and have others come alongside us and follow Jesus as well. Okay, let's pray together. Dear God, you rock, and we love you, and we're so glad that you call people to be catchers of people. Please help us learn the way to bring people to you. 
Invite you to turn with me, if you will, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 20. I think that's going to be on the screen as well. So I invite you to read along with me. Hear God's holy word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called out to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. They followed Jesus. May the Lord have blessing and understanding to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you so much for your story. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you interact with us in the former story. God, we ask that you would send your spirit upon us this morning and allow us to discern its meaning for us this day. As we ask in the name of your son. Amen. I want to have a little bit of confession this morning. There are very few things in life that will get me out of bed before 7 a.m. before the alarm hits. Uh, one of those things is, is fishing. Uh, if, if per se I was, a, you know, maybe awake until 11 o'clock at night, I will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning if I know I'm going fishing. In fact, most of the time when I know that I'm going fishing at 3, I'm awake a lot of getting everything ready uh, to actually go fishing. Um, it's something that I have learned to enjoy from a very early age. I believe I was probably four or five when I got my first fishing rod or tackle box. Um, it's something that, that I enjoyed doing with my father, with my uncle, and with my grandfather. Something that, that I have taught my children how to do. Mackenzie, our oldest, was probably two or three when we have a picture of her fishing with me. Don't know that she did a lot of catching, but she did some fishing. Miller, again, who's our second, he, he fished quite a bit with me and still enjoys it for the most part. Our third daughter, Moria, has fished with us, but she is, she's not a big fan of the sport, and so she doesn't do much of that anymore. But Mila, our youngest, that's her fishing rod that I showed you earlier, Mila will fish by herself even. She'll go uh, anytime that she feels a desire to do that. It's something that's part of our family. We enjoy uh, fishing. And I think it's just kind of innate in us. It's something that, like I said, it's a family tradition. Um, and I can, I can say that I love to go fishing myself, but I really, really love teaching someone else how to fish. There's something about that bonding that takes place on a boat, uh, going out and fishing with somebody and teaching them how to read the water and where to cast and different things like that. It's, it's my favorite hobby. Um, and I've learned a great deal of life from my mentors with whom I was fishing. 
They told me stories, they told fishing stories, they told jokes, they talked about life in general, and it's just always been a blessing in my life to be able to go through that. In fact, one of the joys, I think, of moving back to West Virginia for me is that my parents got me a lifetime fishing license years and years ago, uh, and I lost it, and I called um, the Western Department of Natural Resources and said, hey, is this still valid? And they said, yes, absolutely. So they mailed me a new fishing license. I get to, to look forward to fishing some new lakes. I've never really fished the Coal River, ever, but look forward to doing that, and I love Summersville Lake, so I hope that I get to do that in the near future as well. Fishing is, for me, a deceleration of life. It's a way for me to escape the hustle and bustle of the world. In fact, when we plan vacations, we typically try to get close to some body of water, and I'll take a fishing rod with me almost every time. If I, if I just do something, getting a line of water for me is, is just a great time. It's me time. It's a time for me to escape the world. It doesn't take a lot of sacrifice, really, on my part to put a line in the water and try to catch a fish. So I think it's a great hobby. And even if you hate fishing, you're really going to hate the sermon because it's a lot about fishing. But if you hate fishing, then maybe have another hobby in your life that you enjoy doing so you can relate to what it is that the hobby can give us. It allows us to have a mental and physical break from normality. But as I said, today's lesson really is a fishing story. And I'm willing to bet that you've heard the story a time or two. Um, if we know anything about the life and ministry of Jesus, we know that he called several men to leave their profession to follow him and to make them fishers of men. That's a, it's a story that all the lectionary texts each year, A, B, and C, we're going to read the story from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke, um, and I think maybe even from John. John's, John's call story last week may seem to at first contradict this. And that it's not about fishing at all. Uh, it was about how mesmerizing it was to see Jesus know someone who sits underneath the fig tree and call them to come and follow him. But really, it's all about the same thing. It's about Jesus saying, come and follow me. Um, so when Jesus says that to, to the men this week, um, there's a little bit of a difference. It's not, it's not like last week's call, where there may be an idea of people being smitten by Jesus because he knows something about them. This week... Um, it's choosing to follow uh, kind of in a new way because it's leave everything behind and, and follow me. We're 13 verses into Mark's gospel and we've been bouncing back and forth between Mark and John the last few weeks. Um, but this is still a pretty linear timeline that we have thus far. So the call story last week was a little bit different and odd. It kind of matches to some extent with this, uh, this timeline as well. Mark has introduced a character named John the Baptist. Um, we read about the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven saying, Behold, this is my beloved son. And then this weird thing happens in Mark that's different than the other Gospels. Jesus' temptation story, which is a real story elsewhere, is in Mark's Gospel just one little verse. And the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was cared for by the beast and by the angels. We don't even read it as part of our election series. Um, and so the next thing that happens is that we see that John the Baptist has been delivered over that verb that's there um, is later going to be used to talk about Jesus when he is handed over um, he's arrested but the same same Greek word is there so he's delivered over John the Baptist is delivered over imprisoned um, and so we're not even halfway through the first chapter of Mark and there's this weird 
shadow of institutional violence that's taking place. And so we can kind of start to see how life in Galilee in the first century kind of unfolds. John is a radical preacher, and now he's been arrested. We don't know that story yet, but he's been arrested. And so now Jesus is, is now calling his disciples to come and follow him. Um, so this is this is a little bit of a this is a little bit of a challenge. So we, we can kind of see that these leaders, these unnamed leaders, whoever it was that arrested John, maybe it is that they don't like what John was saying. So the rule could be that if you don't like what someone says, you throw them in jail or maybe even kill them. Now, if you're trying to say something radically different and maybe even unpopular from what the, the norm is, then we're just going to try to get rid of you. And so. John is, unfortunately, both a political and religious leader. And so he's put himself, we think, in hot water. And eventually it's going to lead to his death. Jesus, while we don't like to think of this, is a political and religious leader as well. Um, that's his ministry that we know so well. And he says some things that aren't necessarily popular amongst the political or religious leaders of the day. And he gets himself killed. So maybe there's a little bit of a family heirloom that these two cousins are sharing. Radical preachers, radical religious leaders, political statements made by them, and they both get killed. But we don't get that all right here. We need to keep that in the backs of our minds that there's this is a loaded statement that John has been arrested. Um, maybe the reason Mark doesn't expand on that in his text is that that was already a well-known idea. In fact, uh, maybe Mark. We're going to find out a lot of things in Mark are known as the Mark, the Mark of Silence. And so he doesn't speak to something, um, which helps reveal something much more tangible in the future, regardless of what's going on there. We need to keep in the back of our minds that John is off the scene. This, this messenger has named this Jesus. God has named this Jesus beloved. And now Jesus is the main, he's the main portion of this good news idea. So 15 verses in now. Mark's Gospel, Jesus is presented as being both of Galilee and coming into Galilee. Uh, Mark is going to make sure that we know quite well, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Mark's going to know and let us know quite well that Jesus is from Galilee. He is not of the religious elite of Jerusalem. Uh, the Jesus movement would later be colloquially known as the Galilean movement. And so we, we kind of need to know a little bit about what's going on in Galilee. I talked about that just a smidge. We're going to unpack it a little bit more this morning. Galilee is, for all intents and purposes, a multicultural area of, of Israel. It had a very significant Gentile population. Uh, the main reason that it did is because of both the, the Greek and Roman, Persian, Syrian, all of those different armies that have fought for this little piece of land for centuries have given gifts as the spoils of war to their uh, religious leaders, or maybe sometimes not their religious, or their, their, sorry, the military leaders, and maybe not always the military leaders, but someone that could be viewed as competition for somebody else that was in Rome or in Greece. Uh, so regardless of all that, they've been given grants of land there, and so they, they've stayed. It's a, it's a nice little area to live. It rarely snows. Uh, when it is, it's celebrated. It's, it's multi multiply uh, very like, lovely season there, multiple times of the year. And so they just stayed, the Gentiles stayed. The other thing that I mentioned last week is we're near the Decapolis, the city of Tent. And so that's a very 
an important place on the trade route that goes from the Far East into the Middle East and, and even into Europe as well. Jerusalem is not on that trade route. And so Galilee has been able to become, for lack of a better term, a little bit more liberalized in their Judaism um, and much more open to other cultures and races being there. Jerusalem, the city on the hill, is, is much more conservative and, and tightly held ideal. So that's why there's this, this confrontation that kind of takes place between the, the, the two areas. However, the Jews that live in and around Galilee, the indigenous peoples in this area, are largely impoverished. Um, they kind of just barely scrape by in order to try to help these political leaders, the elite, that live there, and even the elite in Jerusalem um, to the south. They're, they're trying to keep them well-fed and uh, allow them to be um, treated the way that they believe they need to be treated. So they then treat these people of Galilee not, uh, not so well. Maybe you have heard the pejorative uh, term that we are referred to by our stately neighbors, where the hillbillies from West Virginia. Um, these are kind of the hillbillies of Israel. They were in the mountains, even though Jerusalem is on, on the hills up, but these are the hicks from the sticks, if you will. They're looked down upon by the Jews. They're looked down upon um, by the, the Jews of, of Jerusalem because they uh, aren't as religiously pure. They live amongst the Gentiles. That's how dare they do something like that. And they're looked down upon by the Romans and the Greeks that live there because these people are um, worshippers of only one God. And the Greeks and the Romans, you know, were so much better in their minds because they had multiple deities. And so this was this was just not a great place to live. That it was not uh, it was not we didn't need not romanticize this. Um, this was this was a challenging place to be. There was a physical isolation in Galilee. Um, the land is is completely separated from Jerusalem by an area um, that we kind of call the Jericho Road, uh, which is, is a period to this day that is not necessarily uh, under. Conflict as to whether it belongs to the state of Israel or not, even in the 21st century. And so, part of this challenge is that these indigenous people, these tribes that have lived there for years and years, they don't, they don't, they don't get together well. And in order to get to Jerusalem, you kind of have to go through Jericho and Galilee. So there's a literal separation of people. And that's that's a, that's all being unpacked in just a few verses. Jesus of Galilee is going to Galilee. Again, we don't have all that cultural knowledge. So Mark skips over those details. I think this Mark is important to tell you what's going on. Now, in any great work of literature, the first words of a character have very special weight. Um, so Jesus' first sentence in Mark is, the time has been fulfilled. And the word for time here in Greek is kairos. Um, and that means a very specific or special moment. And so for Mark, as he's writing this, this is the breaking in of God. This is God's time. The other word in Greek for time is chronos, which is where we get our word chronology. So it's kind of linear, more linear. But kairos is, is God's time. It's a time of a very specific moment where something amazing has, has kind of happened. And so now, now that you've got a background, we're going to go into talking fishing. So the Sea of Galilee, um, it's really, it can also be called Lake Gennesaret, it's, it's a big lake, 
It's a freshwater body of water. It's about seven miles wide and 13 miles long. The Jordan River comes into it and, and kind of fills the sea. And then uh, the Jordan River comes out of it and eventually makes its way down to the Dead Sea. Uh, and so one might imagine that the shoreline is populated with little villages. That's kind of what's happening here. We don't know exactly how far Jesus walked between the, the, the two uh, different call stories here, but these fisher people, these anglers live along the, the, the shoreline and, and they live in these little villages. And so you, you would think maybe then that there's kind of a free market economy. If you can go out and catch fish, you can provide for your family, but that's not actually what happens. The fishing industry was very regulated. I complain every time that I go to a new state and have to buy a fishing license. Hells in comparison to how these people were treated by the state. It was all to benefit that urban elite, either the urban elite in the metropolis or even into Jerusalem. So there were two different kinds of taxations that were happening. Rome taxed people and Jerusalem taxed people. Everybody else was poor. So Caesar and Herod benefited from the fishing trade. They would tax the things that people used to build their boats. They would tax the things that they would use to put their nets together. They would tax the ability to go on to uh, Herod or, or Caesar's water. Uh, they would tax that. They would tax it when they would come in. Whatever fish they caught were taxed. The processing of those fish were taxed. Transporting those fish was there was a taxation to get those to other places. And so. While you might think that it's a lucrative position to be able to be gifted the ability to live alongside a lake that's filled with fish, to be able to actually go onto that lake and fish was very, very costly. And so the other entity that made sure all of this uh, took place was a tax collector. And so in the backs of our minds, when we hear the story of the tax collector, why would the people that were known as fishermen have such disdain for the tax collector? Because they literally were taking all of their profits away. So keep that in mind when we talk about that story in a few weeks. So fishing rights were generally held um, by some sort of family bond. So that's why you see these people fishing together as brothers or even with their dad. Um, and so you, you kind of, once you got that fishing lease, you were able to keep it. You didn't really necessarily inherit it, but you were able to at least say this is the same business. And so you can stay out there and keep fishing. Um, Part of what's happening here is that the disciples have to make a rather rapid decision. Now, you may have heard sermons preached about this in the past where it's, oh, look at these disciples, they dropped everything and they, they follow Jesus. Oh, what faith that would take. I'm going to take us a different direction today. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge us a little bit. Fishing commercially was not a high paying job. It was a very laborious job. Um, it was something that from sun up till sundown, you were out there in the water. Sometimes if you didn't have a great day during the day, you'd have to go out at night and fish. We know that people fished at night as well, even from the biblical text. It was back-breaking work. They didn't have fishing rods. They had nets. They would grow the nets and try to bring those nets in. Terrible hours, few benefits, very little pay. <coughs> they were in service, in adventure service. Then comes Jesus. And he extends a call that few of us would be willing to deny. Now, I'm going to kind of mix some metaphors here factually, but we know something. What I'm going to talk about, we know for sure it took place between the second and fourth century. And so I'm going to try to reverse that a little bit. There's, there's some scholars and theologians, even my favorite professor from Seminary, would argue with me and say this is not the case. But to take a, a grain of salt, what I'm going to say next. However, we know that the way the call process of a rabbi to a student's work in the 2nd and 4th century, post 
uh, exile, when the, when the exiles and Jews happened, when they burned down Jerusalem, and Jews had to kind of escape and were, and were sitting all over. We know that the way that rabbis gathered students to themselves is they would walk around town, they would notice conversations that were taking place, and the rabbi would say, Come and follow me, and I'll be your teacher, and you'll be my student. We also know that all of the, the people that Jesus calls name him rabbi. And so they, they look at him as as a rabbinical leader. If you were chosen by a rabbi when you were a young boy, your labor would be practically non-existent. However, if you were not chosen, you would literally follow in your father's footsteps, and you would do the work that was chosen for you. So when Jesus extends a call to these men, he is literally saying, I'm going to change your life. You're going to be given a second opportunity to forge ahead educationally, You've been skipped over perhaps once, and now I'm going to call you alongside me and teach you. So if any of us had to choose between radical manual labor or sitting down and studying at the feet of a teacher, what would we often choose? If you were going to be paid probably the same, maybe even paid more to be educated than to have to work your entire life, I think probably most of us will choose to say, hey, yes, if this dude's offering a free education, I'm in. And so not because I'm a self-serving decision maker, but I think maybe because I have a little bit of opportunistic uh, elements in my life, I think I would follow Jesus. Especially if I was the cat out the boat who was just mending the net. I, I didn't even get to be the person out fishing. I, was, I had the task of trying to sew the net back together. If, if you're coming alongside me and saying, hey, make your life better, come and follow me. As an opportunist, I think I would follow. This was a little bit of an escape plan. And so while it's it's probably okay for us to think that the disciples you know, radically left their parents and their profession to follow Jesus, we also need to balance that with this guy can give me something. And if you're struggling with this right now, I want to give you further proof of my theory. When Jesus died, what did the disciples do? They went fishing. They went back to their trade. Because now that this Jesus fellow is gone, we know especially in John's Gospel that Jesus found Peter out fishing. He was fishing naked, which is a weird story, but he was out there fishing anyway. So it's not as much drop everything, follow me, as it is this guy might have something to offer me that I'm going to be able to benefit from later. So this is not necessarily an immediate conversion. This is not something that I would even go as far as saying these weren't Christians. These were still very much Jewish men. And, and their following of Jesus became a gradual process. Yes, they may have leapt from the water, but I don't think that they leapt religiously. I think the disciples felt change occurring, and so they bought into a new line of work. And they once felt that change was possible, and they took that first step, and there is faith in that. And they certainly saw amazing signs, they, they saw miracles, they heard great teachings, but at this moment, at this snapshot of history in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has done none of that. He simply comes by and says, hey, let me teach you something. And they left their laborious work and they followed Jesus. 
and they were converted from his resurrection. They were converted once Jesus came back and said, everything I've said was accurate. Now, go therefore and baptize my name. And that's when they really truly followed Jesus. In my opinion, I think that's what happened. If I were to put this, kind of wrap it around the idea of when I go fishing, I'm going fishing to get away from profession, to get away from the struggles of life, and to jump into a hobby. I have to leave that hobby behind eventually to come back and, and work. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here with the disciples. I think maybe for them this was a three-year hobby. Or maybe for that three years they were with Jesus, they said, man, this is pretty awesome. He's going to be a great leader. We're going to be great because of this. I mean, think about what James and John say to him later. Let us come and sit on your right and your left. Let us be the two most powerful people in your kingdom. We know that that's there. And so this is an opportunistic moment in their life where, where they're trying to get something a little bit better. They vacated profession, perhaps for hobby. Rarely, if ever, do I think about giving God my spare time. And I think part of the reason, again, confession is good for the souls, so that's what I'm doing today. I think part of why I rarely think about giving God my spare time is because God gets so much of my profession. And so it's a challenge for me to find time in my, in my in spare time in my life when I, I devote that solely to God. Now, I could argue and say that when I've got a fishing pole in my hand and I'm outside looking at nature and I catch a fish, I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. That was pretty awesome, right? But again, it's more opportunistic than anything else. So when so much of my work gets the Lord, and when I vacate, I will admit to you that I vacate my time away from God alone. It's a break for me. My family goes on our trips. You know, we don't go to church on Sunday. It's not going to end. It's okay. That's just not part of what we do. And that's not the greatest explanation of what I think is happening here. Because like I said before, I fish for fun, they fish for life. There's a little bit of switching around. I preach for life, I fish for fun. But I recognize in this story that that means I too am still converted. I'm saved, but I'm still in the process of converting. I still have to follow Jesus. One of my favorite theologians of all times, his name is Diogenes Allen. And in his book, uh, it's called Spiritual Theology. And he talks about what his idea of salvation, conversion, and, and then ultimately redemption kind of deal with. And he says, at some point in time, you realize that God loves you. And that's, that's salvation. And it's at that point when you're walking along this linear timeline and you start to turn. And as you start to turn, that's the beginning of your conversion, but then the rest of your life is truly your conversion because you're walking to the Lord toward ultimately death and the, the fulfillment of your baptismal vows. When I read that, that's when I started realizing, I think I'm Presbyterian. I was a free agent before that, and I think I became a Presbyterian to read the Dodgers out. So if we look at the story and we say, there was a turning, they left what was, what was known to them and they started walking towards Jesus. That wasn't exactly the time that I would name them. Um, they weren't the apostles yet. They were disciples. They were still learning. And so, dear friends, I have a question to ask you today. First of all, what would it be like for me to vacate my preconceived notions 
that ultimately help me make decisions in order to follow Jesus? What would it look like for me to follow Jesus away from whatever is my comfortable seat of battle? What I know, what may be painful, but what I know. What would he have me fish? What's holding me back from finding out? What's holding you back from finding out? Who wants to go fishing? Let me learn to fish together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. And now let us declare what it is that we believe in the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We now come to the portion of our worship where we collect our tithes and our offerings. It's going to be a prelude for us to think through how it is that we make our sacrifices to the Lord. If you notice the next screen up, it's going to give you the address where you can give online or you can mail to the church. However the Lord leads you, we invite you to, to ponder and meditate upon that now.
given to us in this life. Lord, as we return a portion of these gifts to you now, we ask for your courage to use them in a manner which you see fit. Always we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. We come to our time for the prayers of people. Hopefully you are able to take a look at our bulletin and see um, all the requests that are there. Please be mindful of, of all of those. I have a little bit of an update. Last week I mentioned to you that um, Kathy's father had COVID. Um, he actually was discharged on Monday, she said, and went back to the ER two different times and then was readmitted to a COVID uh, hospital unit yesterday, which I guess was Friday, she texted me. Um, and so he's doing okay, um, but it's going to be a while before he's kind of back to normal. And then her friend that we prayed for last week, uh, Cheryl Maynard, uh, does have COVID and was being admitted to a COVID unit yesterday. So please be sure to keep um, Kathy and her father, Larry, and her friend in your thoughts and prayers. And, and certainly we all have concerns in our life. We all have challenges, and some of those are spoken and some unspoken. But let's, let's lift all of those concerns to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us, Lord. We're thankful for all of the days of our lives. We thank you, Lord, also for people in our lives who have influenced us to be the people that we are now, the people who spent time with us in church and taught us the love of your dear name, the people in our families who have given us the gift of time and fellowship friendship, kinship, the people in our neighborhoods growing up, the people that we had in our lives throughout our schooling and education, and the people that are our friends at work, where we're just so, so thankful for the community of faith, the community of friends, and the community of love that we have around us. God, because we are mindful of that, we also know that from time to time, Lord, challenges in this life exist, and so when we don't have answers, God, we come begging to you. And Lord, all you may be our theological and faith life, Lord, we also know, God, that you can be the grantor of all good things. We also know, Lord, that sometimes your answer to our questions is simply no or not yet. And so, God, we come to you with the mystery of our life, the mystery of this faith. We're just thankful, Lord, that you are alongside us in this journey. Holy God, we hear the burdens of our heart, the meditations of our mind, and we ask God that you would ease our questioning. We're thankful, Lord, that you have called us by name, that you call us to go into the world, to speak of your love, of your good news, the gospel message, the UN Galilee. We thank you, Lord, for that call, and we ask God for your patience as we are still discerning how it is that we go about living that. You would think in 2,000 years, Lord, we would have figured that out, but we still struggle how to speak to some of those friends of our faith. So God is our guide, we ask that you would empower us. Lord, allow us to speak with love, with humility, with grace. But Lord, we do ask for that patience as we're still in the process of trying. Father God, we're thankful for the country where we live, we're thankful, Lord, for the freedoms that we have in this country, the freedom, Lord, to gather, to speak of you and your dear name. We're thankful, Lord, that this is a land where all religions can peacefully gather and worship. We're thankful, Lord, for all those freedoms afforded to us. Lord, we pray for our president who was inaugurated this week. We ask God that you would 
meet with our president and the first lady, our vice president, and first gentleman, Lord, as they guide and direct us, meet with our elected officials nationally and locally. We pray, Lord, for those here, even in St. Albans, who are governing over us, who help us understand what's best for our community. God, we ask that you be patient with them as well. But Lord, we know that all people make mistakes, God, and as, as people of faith, Lord, we ask that you would remind us to be people of grace. God, we're also mindful that while we live in this country with freedoms, there are people who live around the globe who are not afforded such freedoms. And so we pray, Lord, where there is religious persecution, that there will be freedom. We pray, Lord, that where there is hunger, there will be feasting. We pray, Lord, that where there is a lack of water, that there can be a living, flowing, joyful water. God, we ask that you would burden our hearts to see those who are troubled around this globe and burden us, Lord, to see and seek a way for us to, to help them as they cry out in a still small voice from the wilderness. Lord, let their voice be your voice. May it burden our hearts. God, in the stillness of this moment, we pray for ourselves, for our family, for our neighbors, for those close to us. Lord, so hear our prayer. Holy God, we are amazed by your grace and the glory of your ways. Thank you, Lord, so much for sending your Son to earth, for showing us how to live and teaching us also to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now time for our closing hymn of meditation. God is calling through the whisper. Fishermen, 
Uh, I will teach you how to catch people. Now, think just for a moment about the logistics of how they catch fish. They throw them that into the water. The fish have no idea what's going on. So then they're like, oh no, we're in a net. And then they're pulled to the surface, they're killed, and we enjoy them, they're delicious, it's amazing. Now, put that in perspective. These people that know how to do that, throwing nets and catching things without their permission, are now taught how to catch people. And I think we've always, maybe not always, and not always me, but sometimes people have thought that evangelism, the good news, the word evangelion that gives us good news evangelism, maybe the times in our lives where we think we're going to go catch people, we try to do it in a similar manner, throwing something out, catching a broad amount of people and bringing them to me and saying, now be like us, now come and be like us. I don't think that's what the actual teaching that Jesus gave them was. I don't think it was, throw this out there, grab people, bring them to you, bring them into this place, and then say, now you are one of us. That doesn't really work. And yet, for about 1,500 to 1,700 years of Christianity, that's kind of what had happened. You know anything historically? If you weren't part of a Catholic church, you didn't really get to have much. And then even when the, the protesters broke off and we now have our Protestant faith, even, even in, through Europe and even into this country, you had to be named to be a member of a church before you could be a landowner. And you had to be named as a church as late as the 20th century when you applied for a bank account in certain towns. Because that's just what you had to do. You had to declare where, where you were a person of faith. I don't think that that's what Christ had in mind. I think part of the story that Jesus is teaching these, these men, these rough and rugged men who now catch things and break their backs and reel them into the, to the boat, I think what he's trying to teach them is the softness and the gentleness of a loving and gracious God. And I think when we learn how to be filled with loving kindness, people who worship a loving and gracious God, people will jump into our boats. Our prayer for all of us here at St. Albans is that we, in the process of our conversion, are still learning to be gracious, filled with love and kindness, humility, and joy. May we do that alongside each other every day of our life. Now receive the blessing of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May you be with us all until we meet again, either in this place or his glorious kingdom come. Amen and amen. Happy Sunday.